We're in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians tonight. Last time, we had been uh, looking at, in chapter 2, Paul's discussion about uh, the various things that they needed to hear with regard to his uh, having been appointed by God as an apostle. And you're going to be speaking more on that in the chapters that are following. But here in chapter 3, he makes a really, really amazing and wonderful presentation uh, for us with regard to the difference between the law and life in the Spirit. And so chapter 3 is a very impressive and uh, very important chapter uh, with regard to what we have accomplished as believers compared to what the people of Israel were able to accomplish with regard to their uh, walk before the Lord. So Paul, again here in chapter 3, uh, we actually read the first five verses of chapter 3 last time and finished with the verse 5 that says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And he's kind of uh, answering his own question that he asked in chapter 2, verse 16, where he had asked who is sufficient for these things. Um, he didn't feel himself to be sufficient to, to really be uh, the one that God called him to be. But by the grace of God, he says, I am what I am. But here in chapter 3, that last verse 5 that we had read last week, answers that question that he asked in chapter 2 by saying, we're not sufficient in and of ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God. Uh, and that's where he's now going to take off in this portion of chapter 3 to the end of the chapter, talking about the fact that the people of Israel... Um, had a relationship with God, but it was a different relationship than that which we have attained to. And he is describing those differences in, a re in again, a remarkable and very important way. So verse 6 of chapter 3 begins with these words, after having said that God is our sufficiency, referring also to God by saying, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here Paul is making a differentiation between the letter of the law and the spirit and the grace that God has poured out in these last days, which we are a part of. But the law was a covenantal arrangement that God had made with the nation of Israel. And you can go back to the book of Exodus and see very clearly that what God had done in making that covenant was he had told them that he is their God and that he would agree to do for them all that they would need to bless them, to give them life, and an arrangement would be made through this covenant that they could come and be close to God. But they would need to enter into a covenantal agreement with God that was mediated by Moses. And that covenant was basically saying, if you obey these things, then I will be your God. And they said, all that God says, we will do. When Moses gave them the covenantal arrangement that God had made for them, he presented it to the people and they said, yes, we will. They agreed to the covenant. It's like signing the contract. They said, yes, we will indeed obey all the commandments that God gives to us. 
They didn't even know what all the commandments were at that time. But they agreed to it because they saw the power of God on Mount Sinai. They feared God and they really believed that they could do all that God would command them to do. That's when, after having gone back to Mount a second time, that Moses received not only the commandments again written in stone uh, on the tablets that he brought back up to the mountain, but he also received the commandments of God with regard to the law that they were to keep. The law was established. Why didn't it happen the first time? Well, you remember that when Moses went up on the first time to the Mount of God for those first 40 days, he had received the tablets of stone that God had written upon, engraving those Ten Commandments upon those stones, And as Moses came down from the mountain, he and Joshua, who had been waiting for him at the base of the mountain, heard a great deal of commotion going on in the camp of Israel. Joshua thought there was a war. And Moses corrected him and said, no, this is the sound of merriment. And they were indeed being very merry. They were having all kinds of uh, evil things going on in the camp. Before even having seen the law, that God had written on those tablets of stone, they had broken the first two of them by making an image of God and by uh, having another God before them. Moses broke those tablets of stone before he entered the camp and made them drink uh, from the water uh, that the stones were crushed into. And, And it was a reminder to the people that they had really blown it. But Moses went back up to the mountain that second time and brought two more tablets at God's command and God rewrote those laws on that second set of tablets and Moses brought them back and gave them the covenantal arrangement that they had agreed to. It was a series of laws, not just the Ten Commandments, but ultimately over 600 sundry commands that God had put upon the people of God in order for them to enter into that covenantal arrangement with him, they needed to obey all of those laws. And of course we know that was impossible. And that was the purpose of the law. The law was given not to really make a way of salvation, but to show them that they had no way to God by their own strength. And that was what that law was written for. But that's the old covenant. But also in the Old Testament scriptures, in the, excuse me, in the book of Jeremiah, we see that God, in his grace and mercy, had in the Old Testament proclaimed that he would establish a new covenant with his people. So I'd like to take you there to Jeremiah chapter 31 and take a look with me at what God says this new covenant is going to consist of. And it's very important because this new covenant isn't going to be established until the time of Christ. Remember when Jesus was with his disciples on that last day, that last supper, Passover supper, he established a new covenant. And that's the new covenant that was being established that had been promised by Jeremiah. Jesus is saying that new covenant would be established by him through the shedding of blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So that new covenant was based upon Jesus' willingness to go to the cross and shed his own blood, and he became the mediator of that new covenant. That new covenant that God would establish with the people of Israel, as described in Jeremiah, was mediated by Jesus Christ. 
And it was a covenant that did not require obedience to a law, but rather acceptance of God's perfect will on behalf of his people through this mediator, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And their only requirement was to receive it by faith. In verse 31 of chapter 31, Jeremiah, God says this through the prophet, set up signposts, make landmarks. And I'm reading the wrong verse. A new covenant, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a hundred or a husband rather to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. So this covenant that God is making does not require them to be obedient to the law because he will put the law of God into their hearts. It will be in their minds, it will be written on their hearts, and it will be established by the Lord. And he has done that through Jesus Christ, our Savior, as Jesus said he would be doing when he gave this beautiful illustration of the cup that he gave to his disciples to drink, which represented his blood shed for all. That new covenant was established by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was our mediator of this new covenant. And it is right for us to assume that not only has he done this for the, Gent for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles who would come in by faith in the same manner. This new covenant was extended to not just Jews, but to all peoples. And that's why it is such a remarkable, wonderful gift of God that we are really able to uh, celebrate as, as we thank the Lord daily for this new covenant that he had given, not by the letter, but by the Spirit of God. Because the letter kills. The letter or the law was not going to be able to save. The law condemned. That doesn't mean the law was in itself bad. The law is very good. That's what Paul says. That's what the Old Testament describes. The law is good, but it's we who are not good. We have been unable to keep the law. If we had, then Jesus would not have had to go to the cross. But God knew in advance that that wouldn't work for the salvation of souls. But he used the law in a very wonderful way to point the way to Christ. So Paul is now here saying again in verse 6, that he is a minister of this new covenant. What a gracious God we serve. That Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who once was an agitator of Christians, who put Christians in prison and had them killed, he was chosen by God, by grace, to go before uh, the Gentiles and, and name the name of Christ and see the salvation of many souls in many, many different places throughout the then known world. 
Paul was a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, an apostle to the Gentiles. And there's no mistake, as far as he is concerned, there is no reason for them to doubt that he has the authority as an apostle to do what he has done, to say what he has said, and to represent them. He doesn't need epistles or letters of commendation from him, or from them, rather, as he had said in verse 1 of chapter 3. He has shared the gospel truth with them, and they are his epistle written on his heart, and they're known by all men, because God did the work in their lives to save them and to fill them with their with his Holy Spirit. And so Paul is very grateful for all of these truths that he is here presenting. Now in verse 7, he goes on to show the remarkable difference between the law and the spirit of life. He says in verse 7, But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Now, Paul is making a contrast here between the ministry of death, is what he calls the law, and the ministry of the Spirit, which is the salvation that has come to us by faith in Christ Jesus. The ministry of the Spirit, Spirit is a glorious ministry of God's Holy Spirit in the lives of every believer. But the law was actually a ministry of death because it, although it was written by the hand of God and it was indeed glorious, it was insufficient to save. It was never possible for anything external to do what could only take place from within, from the heart. And so Paul is making again this contrast between the ministry of death and the ministry of the Spirit. And he says, the ministry of death was indeed glorious. And he says that that is so by using Moses himself as an example of that glory. Because when Moses received the Ten Commandments written on the tables of stone that God had engraved on those stones, and as he brought those tablets back down from the mountaintop after that second 40 days, his face shone with a radiance that came from God. That's the glory of God that he is speaking of here because the glory of his countenance. He was so close to God that that presence of God before him caused Moses' face to shine. But there was a problem. And it wasn't really a problem. It was a demonstration that God wanted us to know. And it was something that didn't get revealed until Paul tells us in this chapter. That which wasn't revealed then in the Old Testament that Paul reveals now is that that glory that shone in Moses' face was a fading glory. It did not last. And that's why he says in the last part of verse 7, it was a glory that was passing away. And that's the distinction that he's making between the glory of the letter of the law versus the glory of the spirit of grace. The glory of death, the letter of the law, was temporary. It was passing away. It did not last. But the ministry of the spirit is everlasting. And that means that it has a surpassing glory over that of the law because of the fact that it is eternal. The ministry of the Spirit will not pass away, will not be diminished, will not grow dim. 
So verse 8 again, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Well, the answer is, obviously it is more glorious because it will never fade. Well, verse 9 continues with another description of the law by saying, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Again, he's establishing that contrast, expanding on that contrast that he made in chapter 3, verse 7 by saying that the law is a ministry of condemnation in verse 9. And the Spirit is a ministry of righteousness. And there is a difference between the condemnation that the law brought and the righteousness that the Spirit brings. And that difference is established here by Paul as a much more glorious uh, ministry of the Spirit over that which the law could give. So Paul, again, is giving this great distinction between the law and the life in the Spirit. Now again, in verse 10, he goes on to say, For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For it was, for rather, if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Notice how he talks about the distinction of one glory versus the other glory in these several verses that we've just read. Make no mistake, that which we have attained is far better than having to be obedient to the law. Because again, no man could come to God by obedience to the law. Now the people of Israel did not understand that. Although they were individuals who wrote in the Old Testament with regard to the fact that you do not come to God by obedience to the law, but by faith. Hosea wrote that we are justified by faith. A man must live by faith. And it's by faith that a man is justified. That goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham was justified not by obeying the law because the law hadn't even yet been given in Abraham's day. Not until 450 years later was the law given. But Abraham was considered to be righteous because Abraham believed God. It is by faith that Abraham was made to be righteous in God's eyes. Now, David also understood that as well. David said, Blessed is a man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are no longer uh, retained by God. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has cast our sins from us. He has buried our sins in the depths of the sea. Isaiah said that though our sins be as scarlet, he will make them as white as snow. There are evidences throughout the Old Testament that there is a way to come to God, but it's by faith and faith alone. What they had, they would be able to receive the presence of God, the wonderful mercies and grace of God, if they would accept what they knew by faith. Now in the New Testament, we have been given great privilege because the New Testament reveals what the Old Testament concealed. And because we have this New Testament, this New Covenant, it is far greater than the Old. It is far better because it is revealing that wonderful news that has been given to us by faith that Jesus Christ came 
and died and was risen from the dead so that that which kept us from God no longer would be able to do so. We have been set free from a bondage that none of us could have been set free from except through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's the glory that we have. That's that glory that excels in verse 10. That is the glory that is made more glorious than anything else that has ever been presented to mankind, even though in the Old Testament they had the privilege of being the people of God and they could come to the Lord in a temporary fashion because of the law. The law did enable them to have a relationship with God and enter into the very presence of God, but it was through a sacrifice that was only, or the only way for them to enter into God's presence. And it is a picture of a shadowing, a foreshadowing of that which Jesus Christ had done. And so those sacrifices under the Levitical law pointed to that one sacrifice that obviously Jesus alone could have done. That is, in essence, what Paul is saying here. The completion of and the elimination of the need to be under the law because we now have a new covenant. Verse 10 again says, Even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels, that is far better. Verse 11 says, For what is passing away was glorious, what remains again, is much more glorious. The law is passing away. Jesus had said, though, I have not come to eliminate the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. Every dot or tittle, and that are dot or tittle are markings in the Hebrew uh, alphabet, every dot and tittle will remain as far as the law is concerned. Jesus hasn't come to eliminate the law, but to supersede the law, to improve upon what the law could not do, and fulfill all of the commands of the law, all of the expectations of the law, upon himself, as opposed to upon all of us. And so Jesus came and did what no one else could do. He fulfilled every aspect of the law, and he alone was able to do all that the law had commanded. And because he was able, as a sinless man, to do that, he was able to then present to us this new covenant that God has made for us. What a rich, wonderful truth this is. And Paul continues and says in verse 12, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Paul is saying, we have confidence we have a great deal of confidence still today. That confidence comes in knowing what the Word of God tells us. And what the Word of God tells us is that we have a new arrangement that is by faith alone that we can enter into this relationship with God in a remarkable covenantal arrangement that God has made available through Jesus Christ as our mediator. That is so wonderful. And Paul says we can boldly speak about these things. There's no question in Paul's mind, there should be no question in our mind, that this new covenant stands and will stand forever. And we can have that kind of boldness that Paul expresses here in verse 12 of chapter 3. 
because he says, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, look, the children of Israel couldn't look steadfastly at the end of what was passing away. If they had been able to see that the shining glory on Moses' face was fading, they would have realized that there is nothing permanent in what was being presented to them, and there had to be a better way. But God in his grace covered Moses' face, or had Moses covered, uh, so that they wouldn't see that fading away. And their minds, though, were blinded in this one sense. They didn't have the complete picture. And until this very day, Jews who have not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior are still blinded by a veil. Paul tells us in Romans chapters 9 through 11 about the fact that the people of Israel have a great heritage, but there is a veil indeed still upon them even to this day. And Paul is reminding us here of that same veil that he mentioned in Romans. It is covering them because they aren't willing to see. They know the scripture, but it is the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law that they are depending on. And because of that, they read the Old Testament and they don't see the salvation that is provided. They don't see Christ in every page of the Old Testament scriptures that we can see. We can read the same Old Testament scriptures and we see Christ. They do not. We see Christ in Isaiah 53. We see Christ in Psalm 22. We see Christ in Psalm 110. We see Christ in Leviticus as the people of God wandered in the wilderness in a formation of their tribes in the shape of a cross. We see Christ in the book of Exodus, in the Passover lamb. We see Christ throughout all of the Old Testament prophets. We see Christ in the Old Testament. They do not see Christ. And that is because the veil has not yet been lifted. But Romans does tell us that eventually that veil will indeed be lifted in the last days. And that's why we can see in the Old Testament scriptures like Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14, they will acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that's why Paul says in Romans 11 that all Israel shall indeed be saved because the veil will indeed be lifted in that day. But verse 15 here says, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. They cannot see because they will not see. Their hearts are closed to it. Nevertheless, he says in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So every person, Jew or Gentile, can indeed come to Christ. And though they may be in darkness, they have the privilege of coming to salvation through Jesus Christ alone, and when they do, as we have done, the veil is lifted and we see Jesus. And we then have a special privilege. Not only do we see Jesus, but there's something miraculous that's taking place and has taken place in our lives when we did receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. The Spirit of God came into our hearts and dwelt within us. And that indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what Paul says in another place, the seal of the Spirit of God upon our lives. He has been given to us as a guarantee. And 
that seal, which is what God has demonstrated as our possession, his possession rather, of us. A seal signifies when it is engraved upon our hearts that we are his. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, again he says in verse 16, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's a wonderful verse. That's a wonderful promise of God. Read it with me again. Now the Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit is the Lord. The Lord is the Spirit. They are one. They are one and the same. This is a mention here of the deity of the Spirit of God. And since he is the Spirit of God, it is also a mention of Jesus the Lord as deity as well. They are one with the Father. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now that does not mean that we have liberty to do anything we choose to do. We have a liberty that is intended for us to be focused upon that which Christ has accomplished for us. Our liberty is a liberty to take full advantage of the covenant that God has provided, the liberty to enter into his presence, the liberty to come and worship him, the liberty to serve him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, the liberty to call him Abba, Father, the liberty to be his chosen people. That is liberty. It does not mean we have liberty to sin. God forbid. We are not at all given that kind of liberty. We have constraints. We are to live lives of obedience, but not because we're having to obey in order to be saved. We are to obey as a result of our having believed. And that is a great privilege and honor and a great liberty, a freedom that we have to serve our God in these last days. Let us not take that liberty for granted, Paul tells us elsewhere. But, he says in verse 18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Do you see what he's saying here? Our veils have been lifted. We are no longer having to be in the darkness. We have been unveiled and we not only see the light, but we are now reflecting the light. Notice he says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. When you look into mirror, into a mirror, you see the reflection of your face. What you see is a physical reflection of who you are. But what God sees when we are unveiled is he sees Jesus in us. He sees the unveiling of the saints of God. And we are like looking into a mirror and beholding the very glory of God. And that is a remarkable statement that Paul is making. We're reflectors of that glory. Moses reflected a glory that God had let him experience. But it was a fading glory. Ours is permanent. It's everlasting. It is actually improving on a daily basis from glory to glory because that is God's purpose. That's God's plan. And he is doing that which he has shown here in this passage day by day. Each day, our new man, that which is within, is being renewed day by day. 
Our old man is perishing, but our new man, that inner man, is being renewed day by day. And it is God who is doing a work in us that he began when we first came as believers, came to be believers in Christ, and he is daily bringing us, by the Spirit of God, closer to that perfection that he wants us to be able to enjoy when we go to him every day. And as we do so, as we faithfully trust in Him as we are sanctified by His Holy Spirit daily, growing in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we're getting closer and closer to that perfection that He wants in us. And that perfection will come when we see Him as He is, in His beautiful glorified bodies, face to face. We will see the King, and we will know Him as we have been known. And when we get to that place, we will then be fully glorified. We're on the way. We're being sanctified now. It's a process. But that process will end in that glorious day when we meet Him in the air. And our bodies will be changed. Those vile bodies will be changed into glorious bodies. And we will then be just like Him. We're being transformed into that same image now. It is happening daily in our lives. And that's why we have such a great, glorious promise that Paul is giving to us here. It is a permanent glory. It is one that will never fade. It is far superior to the glory of the law. It is far superior to the ministry of death. It is far superior to the ministry of condemnation. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, of righteousness. And it is permanent. It is wonderful. It is glorious. It is ours by faith. That's the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the wonderful news that Paul is conveying to the people in Corinth. And that is why they should have recognized in Paul this marvelous authority that Paul has as an apostle to Jesus Christ. And many of them did, fortunately. Those who did not were losing the argument. And Paul will continue to talk about the wonderful grace of God, the light of Christ's gospel, and looking into those things that, that God has revealed to us in these last days to examine the truths that Paul puts before us in these several chapters will be a joyful experience to all of us if we put our trust in Christ Jesus and know that everything that Paul says here applies to us today as well as it did to them in that day. What a remarkable Savior we serve. What a wonderful, glorious God He is. Who is like Him? There is none like Him. And we serve the living, risen Savior. Praise be to God. Amen. And amen. Grace and peace.